Full Scope, Human Longevity and Performance Podcast. We want you to become the most exceptional, high-performing version of yourself. And to facilitate this, we are giving away the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook absolutely free. This is a tremendous resource that will tell you the lifestyle behaviors and mindset that will lead to the best outcomes and longevity. To get this, go to our website, wondermedicine.com or fullscope.org, put in your email, and we will send you this amazing resource, the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook. Boomers, shrooms, magic mushrooms. These are some of the names to describe mushrooms that contain the small molecule psilocybin. This small molecule is very similar to serotonin, present in our gut, platelets, and brain. It causes a hallucinogenic effect, along with numerous other effects on the body. Amazingly, this substance has an extremely low abuse potential and is known to help in the treatment of addiction and multiple psychiatric illnesses. Because this substance and these magic mushrooms were used by Native American cultures and because the rest of the world seems intent on destroying and erasing the culture of Native America, these mushrooms have been swept under the rug and banned for hundreds of years. But because of their powerful medicinal effects, and because society has never been more mentally unhealthy, we're seeing a resurgence of these substances in the form of decriminalization in multiple cities and flat-out legalization of therapeutic use in Oregon in November of 2020. On top of this, there is renewed interest in research into psilocybin in a lot of the academic institutions, which for the last 30 to 40 years have been condemning people for studying psilocybin mushrooms and psilocybin, are now again embracing this potential medicine. Today on Full Scope, we're going to talk about psilocybin. Greater than 200 species of Basidiomycota mushrooms make psilocybin. At least seven genera, the most prevalent being psilocybe species, make this compound. Mushrooms that make psilocybin are present worldwide, but they are most prevalent in Central America, and Mexico is perhaps their epicenter. These mushrooms are typically gilled, have dark spores, and bruise blue. In fact, I've heard experts say that if a mushroom bruises blue, so if you touch it and it turns blue, uh, you know, 10 minutes, an hour, or a day later, and it has a dark purple spore print, it is a psilocybin-producing mushroom. These mushrooms typically grow in meadows and woods in the subtropics and tropics. There's no psilocybin present in their spores, which are the reproductive unit of the mush of the fungi and and, and uh, the fung the mushroom is of course the fruit and b- fruiting body. The cap has the highest concentration, but the stem also contains substance as well. 
Psilocybin synthesis occurs early in the fruiting of the mushroom. And for that reason, sometimes small stunted mushrooms can be surprisingly powerful with high doses of psilocybin. Concentrations in any given mushroom that produces psilocybin can range from nothing to up to 1.5% of dry weight. And this can be different with different species, and even different among the same species depending on what environment they're grown in. The compound psilocybin is much more stable in dried mushrooms than fresh mushrooms, and can typically stay active for months to even years in dried specimens. Psilocybin cubensis is perhaps the most commonly found and known species of mushroom that contains psilocybin because it is so easily grown without laboratory equipment by amateur mycologists. But these days, psilocybin doesn't necessarily have to come from mushrooms. It can be synthesized using organic chemistry methods. It can be grown in E. coli and genetically modified yeasts and then purified out of those specimens as well. And I think that as the DEA uh, ban on psilocybin lifts eventually, we'll start to see chemical synthesis take over as the main producer of psilocybin over hallucinogenic mushrooms. Psilocybin, also known as O-phosphoryl-4-hydroxy-NN-dimethyltryptamine, is a tryptamine chemical. Tryptamines are small molecules. They consist of an indole, which is a benzene ring fused to a pyrrole ring, and a two-amino ethyl group on the third carbon of the pyrrole ring. Other common tryptamines seen in biology are serotonin, which is very, very similar in structure to psilocybin, as well as melatonin, which is derived from serotonin and created in the pineal gland and very important for sleep, as well as the amino acid tryptophan and another hallucinogenic compound, DMT or dimethyltryptamine, which is well known as the active ingredient in the tea ayahuasca produced by shamans in Amazonia. Psilocybin is taken up by the body pretty readily in the gut, and in the liver it is dephosphorylated to create psilocin. And psilocin is actually the active ingredient. This small molecule psilocin binds to serotonin receptors most notably the 5-HT2A receptor in the central nervous system, but also other serotonin receptors as well with weaker agonism. Psilocin also has dopaminergic and glutaminergic effects along with histamine-1 receptor antagonism. I should emphasize that the effects of psilocybin on the neurotransmitter systems of the brain and body is likely very complex, and we're just scratching the surface by mentioning a few neurotransmitters and receptors. Psilocin is broken down by monoamine oxidases to various different metabolites. These are then glucuronidated in the liver and excreted mostly in the urine, though a percent is also excreted in the bile as well. Of note, monoamine oxidase inhibitors are probably going to prolong the action of psilocybin and other uh, monoamine chemicals. Tolerance to psilocybin 
builds quickly, but also goes away quite quickly. And psilocybin does not cause physical dependence or increase the risk of drug dependence. Psilocybin is widely considered to be the illicit drug with the lowest potential for harm of all the illicit drugs. It's got an overall low toxicity and a very low abuse potential. Because psilocybin's main effects are thought to be due to agonism at the serotonin 5-HT2A receptor site, I wanted to talk briefly about serotonin, because it's a pretty interesting neurotransmitter, and it kind of sheds some light on psilocybin in general. Serotonin is a monoamine neurotransmitter. It's got complex biological functions and can affect mood, memory, cognition, sleep, remember it's a precursor to melatonin, reward, learning, sexual activity, along with gut peristalsis and vasoconstriction and dilation. It's generally more of a modulator in the CNS that functions in harmony with other neurotransmitters as opposed to being kind of the main effector of things like, for instance, glutamate. 90% of the serotonin in the human body is actually located in the GI tract, mostly in the enterochromaffin cells, and it regulates peristalsis, which is pretty crazy. Most of us think about serotonin, we think about the brain, but really it's in the gut. And I know a lot of people are familiar with the term gut being the second brain. Here's a good example of why. 8% of serotonin is found in our platelets. It actually gets picked up from our GI tract in the blood by the platelets and then can be released in the vasculature in order to cause vasodilation or constriction in kind of a complex physiological cascade. 2% of the serotonin in the human body is found in the CNS, and that's most of what we're talking about in this podcast. Serotonin is found in plants, fungi, and almost all animals. There are seven major serotonin receptor types, 5-HT1 through 7, and multiple subtypes in each of those. Many different drugs are modulators of serotonin. So they might be serotonin receptor agonists, antagonists, reuptake inhibitors, or have effects on serotonin via other mechanisms. There is something to be aware of, uh, an overstimulation of the 5-HT receptors, usually 5-HT1A and 5-HT2A, which can cause serotonin toxicity. This is also known as serotonin syndrome, and this is a classic toxidrome that everybody should know about. Symptoms can include confusion, agitation, convulsions, coma, hyperreflexia, shivering, tremor, rigidity, diaphoresis, tachycardia, hyperthermia, hypertension. The 5-HT receptor antagonist ciproheptadine is the antidote of choice for serotonin syndrome. Dilated pupils are also a very common finding in serotonin syndrome, and the people who get this are typically taking multiple different serotonergic agents. So maybe they're on uh, a triptan for their migraines, they're on an SSRI, and then all of a sudden they get linazolid, an antibiotic that can also... Um, increase serotonin, and they get a serotonin syndrome. Because psilocybin is a serotonergic chemical, it can also predispose to a serotonin syndrome, especially in those who are also taking other serotonergic medications. Very interestingly, too, another toxidrome, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, which is caused by too much antipsychotic medication, 
is very similar in presentation to serotonin syndrome and often gets confused with it. All right, back to psilocybin. Psilocybin mushrooms are often referred to as an entheogen. And entheogen is a Greek word that translates to the god within. Entheogens are psychoactive substances that produce alterations in perception, mood, and consciousness for the purpose of engendering spiritual development. They're often used in sacred contexts. Entheogens engender a deeper understanding of connectedness with nature and each other. They often lead to long-lasting spiritual significance and personal meaning, mystical experiences, if you will. And they can improve neuroplasticity, allowing us to leave negative thought patterns and heal from a mental health standpoint. For instance, if someone is in a depressive state and they find themselves in very negative thought patterns and they can't break out of it, sometimes a medicine like psilocybin can help improve the plasticity of their brain such that they're able to open their mind and leave those negative thought patterns, create new, more positive thought patterns, and then that leads to that long-lasting personal benefit. This is big stuff, guys, and it's supported by research. Research on psilocybin is not where it needs to be. It's, it's pretty pathetic, actually. We only have small, randomized, controlled trials, but the results are really good. They show a lot of promise in addiction medicine, treating addictions of things like tobacco and even narcotics. The research shows strong promise in the treatment of several psychiatric conditions, including depression, anxiety, obsessive-compulsive disorder, and even things like cluster headaches. I would bet that there are numerous other psychiatric conditions that psilocybin and other classic hallucinogens may also benefit. So, the classic psychedelics are generally considered to be LSD, mescaline, psilocybin, and DMT. I'm sorry if I left anybody out on that one. A really interesting survey study came out in 2018 looking at the link between classic psychedelic use and criminal behavior, and the results were very, very interesting, at least to me. Basically, any lifetime classic psychedelic use was associated with reduced odds ratio of larceny or theft, assault, property crime, or violent crimes. All of these had adjusted odds ratios ranging from about 0.7 to 0.82. In contrast, lifetime illicit substance use of any other drugs was associated with an increased odds ratio of all of these outcomes. What does that mean? Well, it shows that in these 480,000 survey participants, there was what seemed to be a decrease in violent crimes from just using psychedelics one time in your life. In contrast, all the other illicit drugs had the opposite effect. People, we have a medication that potentially makes people less likely to commit violent crimes. How the hell 
Is this a Schedule 1 drug? I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Alright, so what about the effects of psilocybin? Well, in general, these are highly variable. And they're influenced by the individual that takes them's mood, their overall spiritual and mental health, the group that they're with, the group size, and the setting. Time often is distorted with psilocybin. People do not know how much time has passed. People often feel a deep connection to each other, nature, and the universe. They can easily get disoriented. They can feel lethargic. They can experience giddiness, joy. Euphoria is very common. And sometimes even depression. People often get hallucinations, sometimes even with their eyes closed. And synesthesia, or the perception of seeing sounds or hearing colors or mixing of the senses has also been reported. Pupil dilation or myodriasis, vital sign changes, both high heart rate, low heart rate, high blood pressure, low blood pressure, all occur. There can be some instability and coordination issues. People can kind of be like gumbo and... (laughs) You know, kind of uh, seeming very uh, loose and um, off balance. Nausea is is very common, especially uh, kind of right after ingesting. I'm kind of thinking now, like, is that potentially due to the mushrooms having other chemicals in them? Or is that because uh, there's so many serotonin receptors in the gut and the psilocybin is causing effects there? Kind of interesting. I'm not sure. It can cause tremors as well as dysmetria, which is a coordination issue where people tend to undershoot or overshoot targets when, say, reaching for things or stepping towards something or, or things like that. Colors often seem more bright. Senses can be enhanced. And hallucinations can be both pleasant and unpleasant. Most people that use mushrooms are going to report a euphoria. They're going to feel heightened senses. Uh, colors will be brighter. Uh, sounds will be more interesting. And generally, if people are in the right mindset, the right set and setting, they're going to have a pretty good time if they don't have any underlying mental health disorders or big skeletons in their con- their closet. In contrast, bad trips are... Not not the most common, but they occur. And they can be very, very scary. People can feel dysphoric. They can panic. They can get or feel schizophrenia-like or psychotic-like symptoms. can become confused. Things can become derailed or, or derealization where, where you feel like you're you know somewhere else in a scary, bizarre place and and that's not always a good thing. Uh, the vast majority of people that take mushrooms will experience some benefit from them, and that's been borne out in clinical research studies, sometimes even experiencing profound, long-term, life-changing experiences. However, bad things do occur. Again, bad trips happen, and people have done really bad, dangerous things and hurt themselves. They've become violent. They've had increased suicidal ideation and suicide attempts and successes on hallucinogenic or psilocybin mushrooms. Some other bad things that can occur are flashbacks. 
these are like basically experiencing the the feelings that you had or the sensations you had when the, when you were on the drug days weeks months or even years after taking the drug i don't think these are very common but you read about them in every single book about this um Another issue is hallucinogen persisting perception disorder. And this is when a person has continued visual disturbances after using the drug and after it should have fully worn off. Morbidity and mortality. So how does psilocybin actually kill people? Well, it turns out that the actual chemical psilocybin is not very dangerous from a fatality standpoint. The LD50, or the amount of drug required to kill 50% of rats, was 280 milligrams per kilogram. In rabbits, it was a bit lower, 12.5 milligrams per kilogram. Based on various mammal studies, the lethal dose in humans was extrapolated to be about 6 grams of psilocybin. 6 grams represents about a thousand times a normal hallucinogenic dose. So it's a huge dose. This would correlate to about 1.7 kilograms of dried mushrooms or 17 kilograms of fresh mushrooms. That would be more than people could really even eat. What's up, Full Scope listeners? If you are enjoying this content, if this content is bringing you value, Please share it with your friends, loved ones, and everyone else. Post it online, on social media. Let your friends know. Have them subscribe. Put the word out there. That's all we really ask. And at the very least, give us a review and rate the podcast. Thanks so much. Let's get back to the show. Now, Keep in mind that the profound mind-altering effects of psilocybin should never be underestimated, and accidents have led to many fatalities along with things like suicides. On top of this, many people often co-ingest psilocybin, so they're drinking a lot of alcohol, they're using other drugs, and most all the fatalities that have been reported as psilocybin involve co-ingestions. And I think it's more likely that a lot of those other drugs, which are known to be killers like meth and cocaine, probably are what we're more likely to do the person in. Alright, I want to talk a little bit about the history of psilocybin mushrooms and psilocybin use because it's pretty interesting. For thousands of years, Native American and indigenous peoples in North, Central, and South America have used hallucinogenic mushrooms for uh, entheogenic, ritualistic, spiritual, and medicinal purposes. It's also possible that North Africans use them as well. The Aztecs referred to these hallucinogenic mushrooms as tonacatol, which in Nahuatl means God's flesh. This to me suggests a sacramental usage, kind of similar to like the way Catholics uh, ingest the body and drink the blood of Christ at each of their masses. Um, After the Aztecs were defeated in 1519 by the Spanish, the use of many traditional religious practices, including hallucinogenic mushrooms, 
was banned. They basically wanted to erase the culture of the natives and assimilate them into Spanish society, and in order to do that, they had to erase their culture. And because of that, for hundreds of years, these drugs were kind of swept under the rug. And for whatever reason, even though they grow in Europe, though less frequently, they really didn't gain the kind of popularity or frequent use that they did in um, Central America. In the 1950s, there was an increasing interest in classic psychedelics. Uh, remember, LSD had been synthesized 15 to 20 years earlier. And between 1950 and 1965, there were greater than 1,000 papers with 40,000 study participants published regarding classic psychedelics. In 1957, a ethnomycologist and his physician wife traveled down to a Mazatec village in Oaxaca, Mexico. Oaxaca, Mexico is an epicenter for hallucinogenic mushroom use. In fact, in August in Oaxaca, they refer to it as Augusto. Remember, August is Augusto in Spanish, and fungus is Ongos, and so Augusto is because there's so many, there's all these mushroom festivals and, and, and hallucinogenic mushroom things going on in Oaxaca. Anyway, he went down and he participated in some mushroom therapies. He coined the term magic mushroom and then published an article in Life magazine about them. This is kind of when magic mushrooms were reintroduced into Western society. A few years later, Albert Hoffman, the creator of LSD, was sent some mushrooms, psilocybin mexicana, and he purified out the psilocybin from them, which is pretty awesome. I think he was actually testing aliquots himself to see if they contained the hallucinogenic, hallucinogenic compound. Pretty, uh, pretty badass dude, it sounds like. Um, in the 1960s, a Harvard professor, Timothy Leary, uh, was kind of the bigwig in the hallucinogenic research field. He was notably fired from Harvard. Basically, the story was that he was not attending his classes, but it probably had more to do with the fact that he was telling his students and other faculty members to use psilocybin mushrooms and LSD. And in 1966, psilocybin was essentially banned in the United States. In 1970, it was made a Schedule One drug under the DEA. And in 1971, the United Nations Convention on Psychotropic Substances required all member countries to prohibit psilocybin. Now, because Mexico was, uh, this is such a part of Mexico's culture and uh, spiritual foundation, they actually lobbied to have the mushrooms not become illegal, and so were able to avoid, or at least work around, that psilocybin ban of 1971. Remember, a Schedule I substance or chemicals are defined as drugs with no currently accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. I want you to ask yourself, based on everything we've talked about in this podcast, if psilocybin should ever be considered a Schedule I drug. Remember, very low potential for abuse, and even before they were banned in the United States in 1966, there was already research showing that these probably had therapeutic efficacy in addiction and multiple mental health disorders. It's 
just beyond ridiculous to me that you could schedule a drug that, that has positive research like that. After psilocybin and other classic hallucinogens were made illegal, it basically became very difficult to get any funding to study them. It became nearly impossible to do research. And basically a lot of the academic centers started to marginalize those trying to study it which is, like I said at the beginning, kind of funny because a lot of those big academic centers are now jumping back on the bandwagon. Just uh, just pretty annoying to me. I wish they would follow the science and quit following what the culture at the time is uh, trying to tell them to do. We still make all these mistakes today, by the way, and it's really sad and it wears me out. In spite of all these bans, People in the Western world continued to realize the beneficial effects of psilocybin. A counterculture of people growing and using psilocybin was created and spread rapidly around the world, actually. And that has continued to grow and continued to generate interest. In fact, in the last 10 to 20 years, like we said, research is now starting to kick back up. In Denver, Colorado, in May of 2019, psilocybin mushrooms were decriminalized. In Oakland and Santa Barbara, California, they were decriminalized just a month later in June of 2019. And then Somerville and Cambridge, Massachusetts also decriminalized them in 2021. And most notably, as we said, in November of 2020, Oregon ballot measure 109 passed, uh, which both decriminalized and legalize psilocybin for therapeutic use. This is in spite of the fact that they remain banned on a federal level, and I think that UN uh, law is still in place as well. In the clinical setting, psilocybin mushroom intoxication is really a clinical diagnosis. I would just look for the symptoms and just ask the person, like, did you use mushrooms? Or ask their friend, did you use magic mushrooms? It's also important to ask about things like co-ingestions because those can oftentimes be things which you have to worry more about than the hallucinogenic mushrooms. There's really no good clinical test for psilocybin, psilocin, or metabolites that is readily available at any of the clinical centers I've ever worked at or heard of. There's definitely send out or reference labs that can measure psilocybin both in the blood and other body fluids. Usually that's done with techniques using mass spectrometry and gas chromatography. For people who are acutely intoxicated with really LSD, psilocybin mushrooms, or any other classic hallucinogen, supportive care and benzodiazepines for agitation are the mainstay of therapy. So this could be a person that you might want to hydrate up a little bit. You might give them some Ativan to calm them down, reassure them that things are going to be okay, and time will pass and the symptoms will go away and the vast majority of all these people will be okay so long as they didn't co-ingest other things which could be worse. All right, I want to finish this podcast with some practical information about the safe use of psilocybin. Because at the end of the day, people are going to use psilocybin. In Idaho, where I live, the state just next door now has legal uh, psilocybin use. And so it's important that people know how to potentially safely use 
things like psilocybin mushrooms. The first thing to know is who should not take psilocybin or what are the contraindications. And the biggest one is people with schizophrenia or any psychotic symptoms. All of these classic hallucinogens are going to bring out symptoms of schizophrenia and psychosis. It's going to be very alarming to anybody with those mental health conditions. And people with those diagnoses should not use classic hallucinogens. Another thing to be aware of is that in bipolar type 1, use of psilocybin could potentially precipitate mania. We also talked about serotonin syndrome, and you need to be cautious on people that are taking other serotonergic drugs because that's always a risk factor, though that risk can often be small. In general, if you are in a bad mood, if you've experienced past trauma or recent trauma, or if you're just mentally unstable, it's going to be very likely that psilocybin is going to bring out some of the uh, bad things in your brain or skeletons in your closet and cause you to have a very uncomfortable time. And anyone with that trauma or in a bad mood should really be doing this under the care of a provider in a therapeutic setting. Um, in general, if you have any serious mental health problems or on medications, uh, you really should be talking to a provider before using psilocybin. Um, Wonder Medicine, my clinic, would always be available to help talk about this and talk about potential dangers and help people use these types of things in a safe manner. Psilocybin mushrooms really need to be respected because they can take you to a very dark place if you're not careful and aren't diligent about setting up the right setting and situation. I would recommend against co-ingesting any other substances along with psilocybin. These really are kind of a sacred medicine and you really shouldn't be, you know, drinking a bunch of alcohol or doing a bunch of other drugs on it. It's really good to just experience the, uh, the, the beneficial effects of psilocybin on its own. I would avoid doing any driving the day of use, operating any heavy equipment, or making any serious life decisions until the following day anytime psilocybin is being used. Generally, when you take psilocybin, it's going to start working in about 20 to 40 minutes. It's going to peak at 1.5 to 2 hours, and it, you're going to start coming down from it at 3.5 to 4 hours. Most of the time, trips are, are fully over in 4 to 6 hours. Like we said, set and setting are just so key. Being in a location you're comfortable with, with people you like and are comfortable with, are really important. Being in a smaller group is often better than being in really larger groups, and getting yourself in the right mindset will go a very, very long way. Doses can range from 10 to 50 milligrams. Remember, some people can be tolerant, so people who are used to this may want to take more um, usually, this 10 to 50 milligram dose correlates to about 10 to 50 grams of fresh mushrooms or 1 to 5 grams of dried mushrooms. I would highly recommend starting at the lower range of this dose and seeing how it goes if you are a first-time user. These are powerful things, and I promise you, you will have a much funner time taking too little of this than taking too much. 
a lot of people get into trouble because they take a dose of psilocybin they don't realize how much time is passing and they feel like they're feeling nothing they take more and then they have too much on board and it's a bad time and so what I think people should do is they should have somebody in their group or themselves set a timer for like 45 minutes and then at 45 minutes if you're still really not feeling anything really minimal effects then maybe take a little bit more but I would not do it before that remember things are gonna peak at about an hour and a half so people can get into big trouble with kind of taking a few doses in a row and then have them all hit that can be very 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 frightening the doses we were just talking about were hallucinogenic doses so those are the high doses to experience a lot of the side effects and and then and, and euphoria and things that we talked about people can also uh, prepare this as a tea but i'm not going to talk about that right now Another way people use psilocybin is as a microdose. Typically this might be just 0.5 grams of dried mushrooms. So maybe half to a tenth of the normal hallucinogenic dose. If a person is not in the right mindset, place, and with the right people, they might experience what's called a bad trip. And this is going to cause a lot of dysphoria and a lot of problems and honestly even in the right situation the right place people can still have kind of bad trips so this is kind of something to watch out for and you need to be careful in the clinical setting like we said if you're ha if someone's having a bad trip they're gonna get benzodiazepines outside of the clinic though I would recommend trying to talk a person down try and keep them more into the to the situation so say hey man everything's okay you took some mushrooms, you're just hit, you're just seeing some weird hallucinations and weird things. Everything's going to be okay. It's going to wear, wear off soon and we're here for you. Importantly, you want to keep any person having a bad trip away from hazards. Things like firearms, heights, traffic. All these things can be really dangerous to someone who is not in their right mind. A person who's having a bad trip should just try and keep themselves hydrated should try to eat and even better just try to go to sleep this is a self-limited thing with time it's gonna wear off and really all you need to do is is get through the time in general and you'll be fine sometimes if, if people are really freaking out and you just want to try to get them back to reality sometimes putting them in a cold shower can really snap them back into into a more normal state if if anyone is on psilocybin and they're having a bad trip and they're worried about themselves or their friends are worried about them and you feel like something bad could happen it's always okay to call a trusted doctor or even present to the emergency department most of us in healthcare are we don't know much about psilocybin mushrooms but most of us at least know to give someone some benzodiazepines and some fluids uh, to get them calm and get them hydrated so uh, people in the clinical setting can help with this as well and if you're really scared it, it may just be best to go to the hospital though uh, by that same token if you're in the emergency department on mushrooms and you're hearing the sounds of the emergency department which sound like Help! Just weird, scary stuff, and it's a weird, bad place. Maybe that wouldn't be the place I would go. But if you do have a doctor that you could call or a clinical person, you could give them a call for some reassurance or something like that. 
Okay, that is psilocybin. Remember, psilocybin is a tryptamine chemical, very similar in structure to serotonin. It has profound mind-altering effects, mostly via agonism of serotonin receptors in the brain. This has been used by cultures for thousands of years as a spiritual aid and medicine. It tends to impart on users a profound feeling of connectedness with other people, nature, and the universe. Interestingly, people who have used classic hallucinogens like psilocybin once in their life have a decreased risk of committing violent crimes in at least one large survey study. This is a medication that has low abuse potential and could be efficacious in the treatment of a lot of medical problems. It's currently a Schedule 1 on the DEA, but this is very, very inappropriate, and I would expect this to change. What I expect to see in the next 10 to 15 years is legalization of psilocybin in multiple states and eventually the entire country. While psilocybin in and of itself does not kill people, it is very important to respect this molecule for its profound mind-altering changes. It can cause bad trips, it can cause people to do bad things and have accidents, and this drug needs to be respected in spite of all the benefits that it can impart on its users. Thank you so much for listening to the Full Scope Podcast and investing in your health. I'm Dr. Bill Randenberg. If you're enjoying the content, please rate, review, and share this content with all of your friends online and all your social media platforms. Please understand that this podcast is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure your specific medical condition. This podcast does not create any type of doctor-patient relationship between myself, Dr. Brandenburg, and you, the listener. If you do need help with your life, with your health, with anything regarding your longevity or performance, please check out wondermedicine.com. Our longevity and performance program is the best in the world and is ready to help you right now, today, become the best possible possible individual you can be. Thanks. Bye-bye. Pew.